and welcome to another one in our long-running series of financial well-being podcasts. My name's David Lloyd, a broadcaster, writer, actor, um, nerd, man about town, lots of things actually I am, lots and lots of things, never know what I am half the time, but I always enjoy sitting down with these two chaps and waffling on about money, and these chaps are Chris Budd, who's giggling away for some reason. Have I said something to amuse you, Chris? <laughs> yeah, I think that introduction was excellent, David. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Good morning, everybody. And who are you? Who are you? Uh, I'm the bloke that wrote the financial well-being book that started this word. I, I, if I said, I'm sure I've said this before, but one of my favourite jokes, I, I do a lot of talks, if anybody wants to book me. Um, oh, ABC, always be closing, Tomo, right? Um, <laughs> I do a lot of talks at conferences and stuff on the subject of money and happiness. And one of my favourite opening lines is that I actually invented the phrase financial well-being. I just didn't know that two people had invented it before me. But um, it's true, because back in 2015, when I, when I came up with a title for the book and I Googled it, there were two entries on that Google search, only two. And I Googled it again recently before a conference, and there were 260 million entries on that google search now so um i i am literally the bloke that brought financial well-being into the world i'd like to say i think that's fair enough and it's good that we've managed to keep this going in these podcasts and the other person that's helped to share the joy is uh, is our, our our other co-conspirator tom morris who are you tom tell us about yourself well given the always be closing line if you've not seen it it's glengarry glen ross wasn't it is that that yeah film? one of my top five favorite films yeah, yeah it's quite something uh so abc so tom morris director and charter financial planner at ovation finance in bristol uh the firm that chris uh founded back in 20 2000 um and sold to uh, an employee ownership trust so it's run by by us employees and um I'm a director there. Why am I waffling on about this? Well, we supported the podcast since its inception and we are very much open for business. So if you are looking for a friendly financial planning company to help with your planning needs and navigate uh, this world that we're in, we're here to help. Well, my ABC moment is I also do talks and I'll do them for cheaper than Chris, <laughs> even though I don't know as much as he does about money. Uh <laughs> I'm also an actor as well, so anybody out there wants a, 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 a genial, charming man in his mid to late 60s, I'm your man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, okay, enough selling. We're not here to sell. We're here to discuss. We're here to talk. But before we move on, Chris, I need to pick you up on something. In the last podcast, you dropped a little bombshell at some point. We were talking about, I can't remember what we were talking about, but you it's said a website. The website, that's right. We were talking Vinted and Ziffit, and then you said, oh, Oh, hang on a minute. I can't say anything now, but ask me about that in the next podcast. So, Chris, come on. What's this all about? Well, I've started a new business. Um, it's not really a business. It's a hobby. But um, I started buying and selling vinyl records. So I'm a massive music fan. Anybody who happens to be watching, if one of the two subscribers on our YouTube channel is watching, I've got a massive load of CDs behind me. But in the front room, I've also got a whole load of 1,500 or 1,800 or so vinyl. Um, and so for a bit of fun, I've decided I'm going to go to local markets and start selling vinyl. Obviously, not my vinyl, but I've been buying lots of cheap vinyl on, on eBay um, and also some collections and stuff. And they do vinyl on Vinted. Ah, this is so exciting. I've got more more records to look at. This is so cool. You're welcome, Chris. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, well, I've got a load of vinyl that I want to get rid of. So I'm either, Chris, you can make me an offer, but it needs to be a good one because I've got some fairly rare items. Or I might stick it on vintage myself because I have no need for it whatsoever. I'll be around in an hour. 
<laughs> no, we'll still be recording in an hour. Make it two. <laughs> right, okay. What's on today's podcast, Chris? Today, okay, you have to guess who our guest is today. We're going to listen to a chat between me and, obviously, <laughs> you can guess that one quite easily, former 80s pop star, former parish priest, author and Radio 4 presenter. Who might that describe? Well, obviously, I don't need to guess because I know who it is. However, <laughs> having, listened to, the magic. having listened to that description, it can surely only be one person. <laughs> and that perhaps would be the Reverend Richard Coles. Correct. Um, we have a chat about his own relationship to money, what it was like to come into lots of money quickly in the 80s, and also what Christianity has to say about the relationship between money and happiness. Really, really lovely guy. I have to say, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this one. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. I'm a big fan. A bit like the one you did last time, Chris, with Paul Lewis, who was somebody that I've been listening to for a long time on the radio. And and, and Richard Coles is somebody else. Obviously, knew him as a star of the Communards back in the 80s. But I really enjoy his Saturday morning show that he does on the radio. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that interview. Oh, Tom's singing. Tom, I'm singing. Well, stop and listen. Is that what that noise is? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, a, a, 80s pop type music. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely a favorite of mine i'm super right. and if if any of you do, i don't know his twitter handle off off by heart but i follow him on twitter and he is he's just somebody who really brightens up my social media feed so i'm really excited about this absolutely right but you're gonna to have to wait a little bit longer i'm afraid to listen to that interview because before we do let's go on to the first of our regular features no shizzle sherlock now this section came about because wealthy people can sometimes be a little bit patronising when they offer their so-called secrets of success. So in the No Shizzle Sherlock section, we listen to the words of wisdom from a financial or investment guru and wonder whether this is indeed insightful and meaningful advice or whether it's perhaps just a total waste of our time. So, Chris, what have you got for us today? Today, David, we're going to take on a biggie. Um, we're going to take a quote from a man who set up one of the world's biggest investment companies, Jack Bogle of Vanguard. And we're going to set Tomo well, up against <laughs> Jack Bogle. <laughs> and here's a quote from Jack Bogle. Don't look for the needle in the haystack. Just buy the haystack. OK, that's a great line, but I'm not entirely sure what it means. Like a lot of these things, when you start to dig a little bit deeper, does it actually make sense? Tomo, you're the expert. Can you explain this one for us? Well, I, I hope I do the great man justice with, with this. It's this idea that if we put it in investment terms, it's trying to find that company that's going to be super successful and going to make you lots of money. You buy that share and it explodes in value. Well, actually, that's really hard to do. And it is literally like trying to find a needle in a haystack. You know, everybody could say, oh, yeah, I knew Apple was going to be a big, big company and, and I wish I'd bought them in the 80s. Well, you didn't know. Nobody knew. Well, somebody knew, but most people didn't. So his concept was, is rather than just trying to, you know, find that needle in the haystack, just buy the haystack. And what he means by that is this idea of, of owning an index fund where you literally put your money into an index fund and it owns every single company on a specific stock market. So, yeah, you'll have some that, 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 that are losers, but you'll have those big winners in there as well and balanced out. The winners tend to be tend to be more than the losers, and this is where you get that market return over time. And he's basically saying that there, it's incredibly difficult to find that perfect company to so just go buy them all. And the average, 
the the average will work out in your favour, and that's the whole idea of indexing. Chris, do you think I've done that justice? I think you've done explained it beautifully, Tom. Another, I'm just thinking of another way of putting it. Could be if I offered you, David, um, a million pounds, okay, but you've got to choose. I'm thinking of a number between one and ten thousand. If you can think of that number that I'm thinking of, then you get a million pounds. Or alternatively, I'll give you a tenner a week for the next ten years. It's far more sensible to choose the latter. Um, the chances of, of getting that first one are so slim. So it's it, what's the phrase, uh, Tomo? Um, passive investing, right? Yeah. Jack Bogle was the inventor of passive investing, yeah. which means buying buying across the passive board. investing, index investing. He was the he was the godfather who, who effectively invented this, so that mere mortals like us could get access to to, to hold in the market at a low rate. And it's, it's certainly, so- certainly the approach that we. We, we put forward at Ovation. That's brilliant. So, Chris, thanks very much. I will take you up on your second offer. So, Tempo, <laughs> for the next 10 years, you heard it here. We have lots of witnesses, lots of listeners. Thank you very much. I'll send you my account details over. Just send right. me your records. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm going to invest. I'm going to invest in your record company because I sense it's going somewhere. You could be the apple, the apple of Backwell. Right, let's move on now to the real expert at saving money, and that is uh, the legend that is Titus Tomo. Every so often, for our newer listeners, I need to just tell everybody how this legend was born many, many years ago. Uh, Tomo took uh, Chris and another colleague, Ian, out to lunch. He said, my treat, guys, this one's on me. So he steered them in a certain direction. They went to this place, looked very nice, nice menu, and he said, do you know what? They do this chicken thing here which is absolutely brilliant. I had it recently. It's probably the nicest thing I've ever eaten. You really need to give this one a go. And they went, yeah, sounds great, sounds great. So they had the chicken dinner or lunch or whatever it was, and they indeed really enjoyed it. And then it turned out that the reason Tomo had steered them in this particular direction was that he had a voucher, and the voucher was for that specific item on the menu. So they all walked away having had a really nice lunch, and Tomo walked away, not having spent a penny. Thus was the legend born. Chris, is that your recollection as well? It is, David. But there's two things that we learn about Tomo from this story. One of them is that he's a tight ass, but the other one is he has great morals and ethics, and he couldn't keep it to himself. He had to go <laughs> up. <laughs> well, it was my round, you see. It was my turn to pay, and uh, well, he, I can... he only owned up after having not paid. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I owned up, but everyone had a nice lunch and I was, uh, you know, I, yeah, what are you going to do? Well, that's brilliant. So um, that's how we've got to talk about these Titus Tomo uh, tips every podcast. Uh, Chris, have you got one for us before we move on to Tom's? I do, David. So uh, Vivian Webster is a lady who recently completed the Financial Wellbeing Certificate, uh, which is run by the Institute of Financial Wellbeing. And she shares this really practical tip. She said, I'm a member of my local village gym. I pay my membership annually. This usually costs less than monthly member fees and doesn't have the three month cancellation period. And when I renewed each of the last couple of years, the manager gave me 25% off as a retained customer. So it ends up that I've been paying £15 a a month less than I would be paying. Mm -hmm. So pay for something annually you know you're going to use. There's also a great bit about financial wellbeing theory about anticipation and advance paying there as well. So that every time she goes to the gym, she's in... October. She's not thinking she's just paid out some money. It's all been done ages ago. So I like that. That's quite a nice financial well-being tip. That. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And I've got one as well, which is based on recent experience. And we've sort of covered this before, but I think it's worth reiterating. I, I recently, my, my contract with my uh, uh, cable and TV provider, which was uh, Virgin, uh, had expired. And uh, I managed to get a good deal from them a year and a half ago where I got like a £50 discount on what they'd originally charged me. Uh, But that discount came to an end. And then all of a sudden I got an email saying, well, we're going to revert to what you should have been paying, which is like £50 more than I had been paying every month. And so rather than just take that on the chin and go, well, that's fair enough because I'm getting the discount, I just got in touch with them and said, oh, that's a bit of a steep rise, isn't it? And they said, well, you have been on a discount. And I said, yeah, but that's like a third more than I've been paying. And they said, well, all right, then we'll give you another discount. So I ended up paying a little bit more than I had been paying, but it was only like £10 a month more rather than £50 a month more. So by just asking, and and you don't always have to go down the road of saying, well, I'm going to have to think, you know, Sky are offering very good deals at the moment, whoever it might be. That would have been my next uh, mm-hmm. my next ploy. But in fact, they were fine about it. They said, okay, well, well, you know, you're a valued customer. We'll give you the discount. So don't always accept when you get those emails saying, oh, you've got to pay more now. Always challenge it. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that. Right. Okay. So, uh, Tomo, you're the expert on money saving. Speak words of wisdom to us now. Well, I, I I was the expert until we brought Paul Lewis onto the uh, podcast in the uh, last time round. So now now I'm a sort of a poor man's version. But um, this one is from a friend, and uh, I, on this theme of honesty, I will name check in uh, Rohan Sivajoti. How's it going, mate? Hope you're listening. Um, but he does quite a bit of travelling on the train, and he buys his tickets via something called Seat Frog. Dot com. And the benefit of SeatFrog is that you buy your tickets like you normally would, your standard fare. But what you're able to do is you're able to sort of auction to get a first class ticket. So you've already bought your standard ticket. And sort of just before you travel, maybe the day before, something like that, you're able to go on there and auction to upgrade it to a first class ticket. And it costs, you know, pounds, not a lot of money. And and he travelled down to London. He's up in the north of England. Travelled down to London yesterday, and he and he said he thought I think he paid something like an extra ten pounds for a first class ticket. So got all that comfort and all the perks that come with that. Seatfrog.com. So I thought that was quite a uh, useful tip. Chris, I anything do. to add to that? Yeah, well, I just think uh, how times have changed and how tight class Tom has changed that he's now giving us the most middle class tips possible <laughs> of how to get first class seats on a train. <laughs> awful, really, well, the other thing you can do as well is that, and I know GWR do this, and most of them do, is they do this thing called weekend first. So if you buy a standard ticket and you're travelling at the weekend, you can pay uh, a bit extra, maybe a tenner or something like that, depending on the length of your journey, to upgrade your ticket to first class because the first class carriages are usually quite empty at the weekend. Mm. So that's another thing to look into as well. When it first started, it was a fiver. So I always used to do it if I was getting a standard class train, pay an extra fiver, sit in first class. It's crept up now. And I think from London to Bristol, it's 15. But it's still a lot cheaper than if you were buying a first class ticket. I think what all three of these tips tell us is you've got to be smart as a consumer, haven't you? Because the pricing of stuff from the big corporates is designed to catch you out, whether it's... um, renewing your car insurance um, because the same provider jacks up your your price so you've got to change provider every year or or whether it's your broadband provider you've got to have an argument with to get the price down it shouldn't be like that it should really bugs me that we have to make so much effort to get a fair deal excellent yeah so 
there's plenty of options out there, I think is what we agree, but you've got to sometimes negotiate a bit of a minefield, or as Paul Lewis put it in the last podcast, a field of treacle in order to get to where you want to go. Right, so where we want to go is to Chris's interview with Richard Coles. So Chris, tell us a bit more about it, please. So the Reverend Richard Coles was a pop star in the 80s, the band The Communards, um, with a big hit, Don't Leave Me This Way, but also um, uh, one of the most beautiful songs ever written called For a Friend, absolutely gorgeous song. Um, but also uh, he's written a number of other books. So he's written Fathomless Riches about his time as a pop star um, before and after. But really, uh, honestly, such a great read. Um, also uh, a sadder book, The Madness of Grief, um, because he lost his husband, Reverend David Coles, about four years ago. Um, and he's recently turned his hand to novel writing, A Murder Before Evensong, best-selling um, crime book. He, I think of him a little bit like, uh, in the same way as Stephen Fry. He's just so eloquent and got a great turn of phrase, um, as well as being a really lovely bloke. So enough of me. Let's listen to Reverend Richard Coles. So Richard, thank you so much for joining us on the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. Thanks for having me. I wonder why you picked me, though, because I'm not sure I'm the sort of person people would naturally beat a path to my door to inquire about financial matters and happiness. I deal with financial matters and unhappiness, mostly. <laughs> well, well, maybe we could talk about that and see how they're linked. Actually, the reason that uh, I chose you is because, and you will have forgotten this in the midst of time, I'm sure, but um, on Twitter, there used to be a thing called Follow Friday where you used to say oh, lots yeah. of interesting people to follow. And I recommended you with a line, um, of course, he won't follow you back because he's a celebrity, but do follow Richard Coles. Um, and then you immediately put me right by following me back. So um, I've always appreciated that. And uh, yeah, so that's why you came to mind particularly. But also you have got some very interesting, I mean, you wrote a book called Fathomless Riches. So there's got to be something in money and relationship to money. So oh, um, yeah. perhaps we could go back to the to the, to the the early days and... Um, and your what's your relationship with money been like since you were since you were young? Well, I had just I said one of the formative experiences of my life is that I was born into a wealthy family. So my family were shoe manufacturers in Northamptonshire, fourth generation, had come from nothing, but you know, like so many uh, in the nineteenth century, caught a rising tide of opportunity and enterprise and started a family firm that grew and grew and grew and did very nicely so i was born into that in the early 60s and then by the middle 70s there was this massive collapse in the manufacturing sector so that all sort of pretty much disappeared within the course of quite not very long time about four or five years i think cheap imports were the uh, nail in the coffin and so that involved a huge um, down what we would now call a sort of downscaling, if you see what I mean, which meant that my younger brother, who was at a, an independent school, had to leave and go to the state system. We had to move house. Um, my father suffered very badly with it because the enterprise that he was then running employed a lot of people, and it was very traumatic. I was I was a teenager, and at an age when teenage boys, perhaps, well, teenagers generally, are very acutely aware of parental status and stuff and I think I felt very keenly a loss of status and prestige and I think it was a I think it's informed and shaped the rest of my life although that's not something I would always readily have admitted mm, yeah I, my father went bankrupt in my mid-20s and it's informed and shaped my attitude to money and my attitude to life hugely um, so in, in what way do you think it's shaped your attitude to life and relationship to well, money in particular? 
Well, I think like a lot of people who go through that at that age, I have a friend, similar thing happened to him, and both of us have been materially quite unusually successful. And I think partly that's because you have drive, which the one thing that seems to be that materially successful people have in common very often is drive, I think. And what's the drive about? I think it's a determination not to go through that again or to protect yourself from that again, I think. It's a bit awkward with me because I've also, also as a socialist at 14 and then a you know Christian too, both those systems are very suspicious about putting too much emphasis on the value of material things. But I know from the snakes and ladders of fortune that um, you need to, well, I just know that it is better not to feel want. Better not to feel want. So um, that uh, comes nicely into your time with the communards. And I've been, um, uh, I, won't, I won't lie, frantically reading through Fathomless Riches, which is such an entertaining book. Um, Thank you. Uh, there's uh, the bit that particularly got me, one page 142, I'm sure you remember it vividly, um, which is where you say, and so I just went out and flashed my money around. Um, is yeah. that linked to this of not wanting to want? I think so. My, my father loved the good things of life. His father did too. So I remember after the war, when rationing was at its height and Britain was the winter of 1947, my grandfather somehow, illegally, I'm sure, managed to wangle it. So they went to live in Joan les Pins in the south of France. And my father remembered getting an aeroplane from, I suppose it was London Airport then, and uh, flying down to the south of France and sort of leaving grey, freezing, miserable horrible Britain behind it, just stepping out into this beautifully sunlit place where there were lots of delicious things to eat and comfortable places to stay and things to do. So I think I kind of shared that with him. So when an opportunity came my way, also it was the 80s, you know, and there was a sort of culture of expenditure. Um, and so I was in a pop band. You, you, you go from being on the dole to being kind of well-paid with no period of getting used to that, I think. Um, so it was a bit gold card. I remember I got a gold card and I can remember being really embarrassed to have a gold card, but the bank gave us, I could have said no, couldn't I? But I sort <laughs> of quite liked having the gold card too. But it was, you know, still now I would have not, I would not fall for that stuff, but I did then. Yeah. Uh, I, I, there's a lovely quote that I just want to read back to you, um, which is, I saw money not as a means to realise a secure and prosperous future, but as an end to demonstrate my prestigious place in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think that's perhaps overgeneralising a little bit, but I didn't think of money as... I mean, the people who went through that with me, my manager, who's always just been really smart, always understood and has always used money as uh, a means of providing for the future and of, of getting your projects. She has now just retired, having sold her company for a great deal of money. So go figure. Uh, I've always just, <laughs> money for me has always been the stuff in your pocket that you buy stuff with, really. I mean, not so much now. It's a bit different now. I'm 60. But I've never, I've never been, I've never really had, I didn't start out with much appreciation or grasp of financial affairs. I just like buying stuff. And is that still the case? No, not really. I don't buy a lot of stuff. Now, the stuff I do buy, I buy very selectively. And if I do have a surplus, um, I have ideas about what I'm going to do with that. But I'm not interested in, I'm not interested in, you know, uh, the other thing on The Apprentice, when he sends them on a treat, 
I'd always rather go to the Losers Cafe because I think I'd like the Losers Cafe more than the treat. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't feel I need to be part of an exclusive club of winners. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, so that quote would suggest that you. I mean, I, I realise this was a rarefied time. It was the eighties. You were in a pot, all that stuff. What was the change then to your mentality now from where you were at that point in time? Well, age and experience, I guess, also. And also, when I got serious about Christianity, I went from being... I so, but I lived... I, I, funny enough, I managed to sort of not duplicate what happened to my dad around the same time of life, but actually do it more so. So in my 40s, I was kind of well set up. Um, I was living in London and in the country. I had a job that I loved. It was very rewarding, blah, 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 blah. And I went off to theological college. I went from being man with argor to being man living out of one room in a monastery so it was a complete dismantling of all that and i interesting i suppose i was perhaps perhaps as a way of facing a fear i don't know part of it but i found i managed perfectly happily on on what i had and uh it never gave me the slightest bother at all actually mm. and now i'm sort of so i've always managed to kind of live i would like to say within my means but the truth is probably live just beyond my means but That's a bit more uh, fun, isn't it? i've never <laughs> well it just kind of happens that way doesn't it but I've, I've never um i've never it's never been a problem for me actually so i want to just touch on that theology because um you study theology and obviously then that turned into into becoming a reverend uh, the theology um uh, are there any unifying principles around wealth across the religions of the world would you say well, I should think I can't speak confidently for any others than Christianity, and I'm hesitant even to do that. But I, w- I would say that there is a suspicion that the material world is all there is, and that therefore the stuff that benefits you in the material world might be limited in what it can do and its effectiveness. And I think that's true. Um, and also, I think that the dignity we have is given to us by God and not as a consequence of what we do and are the rewards of our lives and the stuff we surround ourselves with. And I think those are quite enduring ideas and quite powerful ideas. And, you know, Christianity has no monopoly on them. But um, that's that's where I am. Mm. The um, We talk a lot uh, about on the podcast about um, self-worth and whether your self-worth is internal or external, um, which is in this kind of space. Um, and you just made me think whether faith is a version of internal self-worth. I think so. I mean, I think if you get it right, and there are lots of reasons why people perhaps have impaired sense of self-worth and religion can sometimes make things worse, not better. But I think if you're getting it right, I think it does because you, you're confident in the not. It's a bit like having parents who loved you. I'm very conscious. I grew up with parents who loved me and I completely took it for granted. It's only when I got to, out into the world and met lots of people who did not have that in their life, I realised just how fortunate I was because I never doubted my place in the world, I think. And I think faith does that to you too. You would never question your self-worth because if you were good enough for God, well, who else do you need to bother about? Mm. Mm. So, and of course, that has absolutely nothing to do with how many cars you own or how much status you have in your job, et cetera. It's a completely separate thing, isn't it? But, but I know that stuff works too. I was with a friend this weekend and he and I, we met when we were in our 20s and we're just running around London. Um, and we are now both uh, in our 60s and doing okay. And we talked about how our lives were different. The one thing that we said was different now was flying business class. (laughs) 
And not only because if you're going any distance, it's just much nicer to do that if you could lie down and go to sleep, right? But we both admitted that there's something about not being at the back of the plane <laughs> that nourishes a part of us, which I think shouldn't really be nourished, but I know it's there. I'm not going to lose sleep over that, right? But I, but it is there. Yeah, no, I absolutely get that. And I think um, uh, I, I have exactly the same thing. I'm, I'm, I'm a big music collector, as you can see for the CDs behind me. Um, and uh, I've been buying a lot of vinyl recently, and I'm very lucky to be able to do that. And I own it. I don't need to own it because I could stream it, but I still want to own it. So, yeah, I, I absolutely get that. And I guess it's um, there's a is there a point where we come where we have to be careful of that though? Yeah, what, I think how, so. How do we know? Well, I think the danger is is that you, if you get it wrong, your life will tell you. One of the most interesting places I ever worked, Chris, was Knightsbridge. I was curate at St Paul's Knightsbridge, which is perhaps the richest parish in all of England, I should think. So a lot of the people who I dealt with there were people who were materially extremely well off and were like anybody else anyway. You know, they had their light and their shade, their fears and their hopes. But one thing they did have was a sense, I think, that they must be doing it right because the world has rewarded them so well. And if they did have anxieties about stuff, the kind of anxieties that we all have, often those anxieties could be filed behind a pile of money or stuff. And the justification, the vindication that the wealth and prestige gave them sometimes made it harder for them, I think, to connect with stuff that was not going to be affected by that, but needed some attention. You often, you know, you see that moment. You ever get it? The other one I found was marriages that went wrong when usually the, the man, the alpha man, went off with someone much younger, right? The, ran off with the secretary, which was the sort of sitcom version of that. There's nothing very comic about it. And this idea that somehow you can kind of trade your way into a world that means you're, you don't have to deal with the reality of aging or the reality of uh, experience and sort of restoke your youth which i think is obviously questionable that that kind of thing money can do that can't you think of all those rich older men with younger grateful wives it's a bit like the the classic george best line isn't it um i'm sure you know the story where he's sitting on the hotel bed and the miss world next to him and a pile of money and cocaine and the, the waiter comes in with some more champagne looks at the george best and goes, george where does it all go wrong <laughs> it's that stuff isn't it yeah, kind of Kind of with the waiter, actually, because I've, I've seen people and I've been that person. Well, I mean, I'd love to have been George Best. My footballing skills were inadequate to that. But I know what it's like to think you've you've inherited the world. And in fact, it's not, you know, George Best drank himself to death, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, my, um, I'm not particularly religious, but I am interested in philosophy and Buddhism is something I've been reading a lot about. And I always think you never see an unhappy Buddhist monk, you know. Um, there's I've something seen a grumpy Buddhist monk. Have you? <laughs> I, had a, I had a spat with a grumpy Buddhist monk, yes, in Thailand once. He was a very bad-tempered fellow. But then, hey, monks get bad days too. Don't they? <laughs> yeah, but I think, I think Buddhism is very good on, isn't it, on maintaining an, an awareness of the doubtful value of you know, and it's not the doubt. I don't want to pretend I'm some kind of austere creature just eating gruel. I'm not. I live a very comfortable middle class lifestyle, and I like it, and I'm happy with that. Um, so easy for me to say, right? And clearly, I was thinking about this the other day. 
what I, the way I live my life puts me, if you look at the world as a whole, in a very, 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 very small percentile, I think. Um, and I try not to forget that. Mm. I love the, uh, the story in your book about your um, your manager. Uh, forgive me, Laura, was it her name? Lorna. Lorna, sorry. Lorna. Uh, who uh, tricked you into putting money into pension schemes. That's <laughs> And, of course, you're now currently benefiting from that, aren't you? Well, I would be. I haven't claimed my pension yet. I tried to, but the form they sent me was just so unbearable i kind of bailed out so i don't really need it yet but i'm i daily give thanks to her in fact she's my neighbor here i mean live in the same village as her um because but that's typical of her she was a person who just understood that the day would come when we would be looking for a means to support ourselves mm-hmm. towards the end of our lives and all of a sudden it's here yeah yeah so, i wouldn't have done it either because i wouldn't have had the wit to do it so she did trick me into it yeah. because she knew that if she just arrived right, she's got to go out shut up i think there's um there's a message for our listeners in that about tricking ourselves into doing stuff there's uh there's a lot of behavioral finance behavioral economic stuff about the fact that we are wired to make bad decisions about money um yeah. and society encourages us to so we have to almost trick ourselves into making good decisions about money but there is a thing you do. Money is like a, a sort of a kind of imp that you have to negotiate with. I mean, it's ridiculous. I, I cured myself of that because I started running things. So when I started running things, I realised that instead of just crossing my fingers and hoping we'd all be all right, I needed to understand a balance sheet. I needed to look at P&L. I needed to look at Q1 and stuff. And I started doing it thinking it would be boring. And of course, it was fascinating because you find out that that's how stuff happens. So I've been involved in two, well, in the housing association and in the university where I'm chancellor, two very big projects there, which have been absolutely fascinating it stopped me treating money like a sort of superstitious thing and just to be realistic about it and pragmatic about it and also not to see it as something which i would derive any prestige from which is see this 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 is the power the energy with which we realize the vision we have so it's not the owning of the money it's the what you do with it that matters and also you realize after a while that i you know you would see big numbers so we built a well, we took out for, for, the, for the housing association, we took out a 50 million pound loan to do some stuff we needed to do. And you think, wow, 50 million quid. And it's a little parade of, I don't know, Lear jets or yachts flickers <laughs> in front of your face. But of course, it's it's not that. There's a numbers on the balance sheet. And uh, and it was, it just took me a long time to really figure that out. And I reproached myself for not having been more responsible, actually. And when I was younger and earning, relatively large amounts of money in a pop band. I was just so irresponsible and kind of silly about it. Uh, um, I would like to just finish off the last five minutes, if I may, talking about Christianity, because it's not a subject I know a great deal about, if I'm honest, other than the the, the, the usual stuff we get from school. But um, what are the positive lessons that you think we can take from the teachings of Jesus from Christianity? That this is not all there is, that there is something beyond even the furthest horizon of the life that we experience and see that will answer all the sum of our hopes and our fears definitively once and for all. So we're just passing through and our circumstances are transitory and don't sweat the small stuff. So don't be anxious about stuff too much. I think to be grateful and thankful for what you've got, to know your blessings is a really, really good thing. Not much of that around in our culture, I think, where we stoke 
the fires of dissatisfaction. Um, to know that you owe your neighbour what you would expect to be owed yourself is quite a powerful idea, I think. The other thing is people think of Christianity as being very unworldly, but actually Jesus uses money and financial stuff constantly. The widow's might, the head on the coin. He hangs out with tax collectors. And absolutely, you know, he's a business, small businessman. He's a fisherman in Galilee. They hire hands. So you're talking about someone who is not financially illiterate, but about somebody who's in a world of commerce and trade. So that's interesting, isn't it? We sometimes think that there's this unworldliness about Christianity, but it's not. It's a very material religion, actually. Yeah. Your point about... Um uh about the, the transitory nature of life there's a, a big house up, up just up the hill i'm pointing where you can't see but across the fields in somerset <laughs> big house oh, up there. Up there. Yeah, got it that's it yeah um and uh somebody who owned that house for a while they had a lovely comment they said we don't own this house we're just looking after it for a period and i thought that was a really nice way of thinking about stuff you know, I've got a number yeah. of guitars, and 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 one day somebody else will have those guitars. Maybe my son. So I'm really it's not a question of me owning it. I'm just using it for a bit, and I've got to be. I'm a custodian of it almost. Yeah, I mean, I would say that uh, that not everyone gets to be a custodian of it, right? So there is a sort of um, thing in it, a, a, a sort of self interest in it too. But I, I'm so, I've got this weird thing because so one of the things I, I'm very keen on is ceramics. I collect ceramics. And uh, over the years, I've built up a nice collection, actually. And not very long ago, I started getting invited out to lunch by the curators of ceramics at big collections. Oh, that's nice. And I knew them a little bit, so I bump into them in that world. Come for lunch. Okay. And I think, why are we having lunch? Nice to have lunch. And I said to a friend of mine who's a dealer, I get by stuff, I'm sorry. He said, yeah, this bloke took me out to lunch. And he said, oh, yeah, well, he would do. And I said, why? And he said, duh. I said, what do you mean, duh? He said, you're going to die. I said, yeah. He said, <laughs> they want your pots. They want, they'll spirit you for your pots. They want your pots for their collections. And all of a sudden I thought, God, these things that I'm a I'm an avid collector actually, and I chased them down and I and I got to know the field quite well. And I've I think it's something I really enjoy. One day they'll be here and I won't be. Mm. So what happens to them then? So have you chosen, or are you getting more lunches? Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, have to do a lot of smooching before I show my hand. You can make an awful lot of uh, out of this, can't you? Yes, I can. There's lunches forever, all lined up in front of you. Brilliant. Well, look, uh, it's been so. an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, I've really enjoyed chatting to you, meeting to you. Thank you, Richard. Nice to meet you too, Chris. Thanks. Oh, what a lovely mm. man. I'm kind of feel that I've been bathed in his what's the word decency i guess and 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 just charm and 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 common sense as well i mean that that shone through for me uh he's uh he's a really grounded man and 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 the thing that struck me we talk a lot about financial well-being and how we can make uh money or the way in which we approach money increase our well-being and it seems to me that particularly um and i'm not a person of faith However, it's clear to him that his faith has brought him huge amounts of uh, well-being. He's uh, so honest about the fact that um, having money can make you feel comfortable as well. Uh, I was struck by the fact that he, he's grateful for his manager having secretly put money into a pension for him, because uh, if she'd said that's what she was going to do, he probably would have said, no, don't bother. 
and it was a very different interview from many of the others that you've done but i just think it also really goes to show that that there are very many different routes to well-being on his spirituality i love the line he said the impact of the stuff we own is limited to the material world and therefore limited in its effectiveness I has a really lovely summing up of 95 96 episodes of this i think that's a brilliant way of putting it yeah i i i think what was quite striking is also how one's experiences in formative ages when you're younger um can really impact some of your views on on money and, and obviously he kind of shared what, what happened with with the family business etc and and that loss of status prestige that was linked to it and and yeah, it was just really interesting to unpack that. And it just goes to show that what we experience as human beings absolutely has a link with our relationship to money without without doubt. Yeah, can we have him on every week? Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, David, I've asked him if he would replace you as host of this podcast. Look. Fair enough. I bow, I bow out gracefully and gratefully. <laughs> There's one other line that he said, which I really liked. Um, Get it wrong and life will tell you. That's not an interesting line because uh, I've listened to this uh, interview a couple of times now because obviously I did it, but also I listened to it again afterwards. And I always pick up more a second and third time from somebody like this. Um, the other one like that was uh, going back away, Nick Elston, the first interview I did with him. I've listened to that about four times now and I pick up new things every time. So some of these are really are worth listening over to again, but get it wrong and life will tell you. But I think there's a caveat to that or a, um, an addition to that which is you need to notice when life is telling you. And some of the stuff that he went through in the 80s when he got his relationship to money very, very wrong, if you read in Fathomless Riches, the book, um, he wasn't very nice by his own admission. And he took to drugs and he, he had a really, really terrible time. And he didn't notice that life was telling him, I think. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that was my take on it. Yeah, I think that's very true. You have to, life will tell you stuff, but you have to be open enough to listen to what life is trying to tell you. He's obviously through everything that he's gone through in his life, has, uh, has arrived at a stage in his life. He's just, just a few years younger than me, but not much. And I kind of recognize that in myself as well, where having gone through a lot of personal stuff, you reach a stage where you kind of go, not that you've got everything that you want, because I don't think you ever reach that stage, but where you look around and go, do you know what? I've learned from the things that have happened. I've learned through the things that I've done and not done. And at the moment, anyway, life is pretty good. So enough of that then. Thank you very much, Chris, for that great interview. Thanks, Tomo and Chris, for the contribution that you made to this wonderful podcast. Thank you also to producer Tammy. We need to give her a few more shout outs as well. because mm. She's the one that actually yeah. brought this whole thing together. Uh, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to it at home or in the car or at work or wherever you listen to these things. Do get it, keep in touch with us as well. We really do value your feedback. So email us, tweet us in the show notes. The, you'll, you'll hear all the different ways you can get in touch. But we do like hearing from you. So um, hang on in there and tune in again the next time we do another one of these financial well-being podcasts. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. 
you can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris, and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think.